0: This episode of Pick Up The Six Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Mud Gear. We have an awesome new partnership to tell you about, and we love Mud Gear because they're made tougher, just like you guys. It's outdoor gear for the outdoor athlete. You can get it dirty. You can sweat in it. It's all good, and I absolutely love it. If you go to my Instagram, you'll see me rocking Mud Gear shirts and shorts on that blue ridge relay and uh, it performed really really well we've got a great deal going for our listeners you go to mudgear.com you use the code p-u-t-6 that's the number six p-u-t and the number six and you're saving 15 percent off today great shirts great shorts awesome socks they've got a bunch of different kinds of socks they've got full knee high socks for compression they've got running socks they've got mountain biking socks they've got rucking socks It's all good. Go pick it up today. It's made tougher. It's Mudgear, and it's 15% off at mudgear.com using the code PUT6. Go get after it, pick up some of their stuff, and help support a great company that we love to partner with. On May eleventh, two 2005, Josh Apple graduated from medical school. One month later, and he was in Afghanistan, and by the 28th of June, he was part of the now infamous rescue of the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell. We revisit Operation Red Wings from Josh's perspective, including incredible acts of service before self along the way. This is Pick Up The Six Podcast. Josh, it's an honor and a privilege. Thanks for joining the show, man.
1: Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: We've been working to make this happen for a while. I'm thrilled to do it. Uh, Guys, you know, It means not a lot of explanation. If you've been riding with us uh, from the beginning and many of you have, and we're just so incredibly grateful for that, but we always find a way back to red wings. We just, we have that here. Hmm. Um, Our second guest of the show, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, who by the sheer grace of God, we got connected and Spanky shared the whole story of that just incredible uh, journey and an incredible loss but also incredible resilience. So it's been well documented here on these airwaves, the ins and outs of Red Wings. We had Matt Brady recently joining us, who who flew that Chinook, that Night Stalker, that dropped the four guys off to oh, start yeah. the op. Right.
1: I, so just I just met him. Yeah, in yeah, fact.
0: he's incredible. So yeah, Josh, I'm just I'm just grateful, man, to have you here today to to talk about your part of that incredible story and just uh, and I just want I just lean in for it with our listeners because it's just become a it's become an important remembrance for us here. And I just feel a sense of duty to the men that obviously lost their lives on that day. Um, and just, we keep sharing the story here. And so you guys might be like, Brian, that's enough red wing stuff. I don't know that we'll ever stop
1: here. It's just, it's something important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think everybody's perspective is different. Like Spanky brings that pilot perspective from it, uh, you know, and same with the Chinook flyer that, you know, they bring that, uh, that perspective to you uh to the story as well and uh and my perspective's a little different right because i was on the ground uh and i've been in these these uh <clears throat> lectures with with spanky and he's very mechanical you know and he's like yeah we flew the the dog bone in and, and, and you right. know the, the spooky and the guy and that's right like, trailer kinda...
0: spooky, that's right
1: <laughs> yeah right the trailer spooky um mm-hmm. uh, but from from my perspective perspective you know we were uh in the back of the helicopter right so we were kind of we were just passengers for yeah. most of that trip until it was time to go to work uh i'd like to back up on the yeah, intro let me, you let, said, me uh, se-
0: let me set the stage a little bit let's do this let me set the stage a little bit right and then sure because i want to talk about how you got to that point right and then share sort of what you saw right and what happened but here's the context right it's late june 2005 the war in afghanistan is on, and you've got these four Navy SEALs who are essentially the front end of an operation to go identify, right, and take out some high level bad guys. And these guys yep. have to go in, right, get recon up, get comms up, put eyes on the bad guy, and then they're basically going to call the rest of the cavalry in, I think, to do work. And essentially, as you guys remember, and if you've seen the movie Lone Survivor, there's a lot of things that did or did not happen, but there's a lot of accuracies and sort of the big picture idea. The four get in, they get compromised early in that operation. Uh, They are unable to get the help that they need. And they have to essentially fight off a bunch of dudes on their own. And through that, three Americans are killed. Michael Murphy, Danny Dietz, and Matt Axelson. Correct. Lone survivor, then Marcus Luttrell, who spends some time, only a couple of days, really, by the time it's all said and done in this Afghan village, they take great care for him. And then the cavalry shows up to extract him out. And we prove once again that the great United States of America will move heaven and earth to go get that one asset. And part of that story, if you go back to episode two, is Spanky talking about the way in which this crew of six Air Force reservists end up as the lead Pave Hawk helicopter with all these other assets to go in and get Marcus. And man, Spanky tells the incredible story and probably some of it's stuff that you you might have known or might not have known being in the back of, of the boat. Yeah, right. Right. So just, I'd love for, if you, if you don't mind to sort of take us into, to Josh's, you know, perspective. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Right. Of it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's like the, uh, the old, uh, story of, you know, six people, six blind men feeling an elephant, you know, describing an elephant and they all describing mm. an elephant, but it's all different parts because they all have, they're all feeling different parts of it. Um, so let me, let me back up and just yeah, kind of start with. <sighs> You know, I was, a, I was a pararescue specialist for uh, 12 years and I loved being a PJ. Uh, it was it's probably the best job in the military. Uh, and I just had a blast doing it. And so I ended up getting into medical school and staying in the reserves in pararescue. And just as I started medical school, my enlistment was coming to an end. So I kind of had to make a decision, you know, do I stay in uh, medical school or stay in the reserves or do I get out and just start over, you know, with, with my new career as being a doc, but I just loved being a PJ so much that uh, I decided to re-enlist. And so I re-enlisted uh, in my first month of medical school uh, as a reserve PJ. And that date was September 9th,
0: 2001. Whoa
1: yeah yeah so uh, two days later, you know, the world, world changed changes. and things got mm-hmm. serious, and I was ready to just quit med school and I was like, look, you know I possess just, I possess a skill set that you know America's gonna need. I'm ready, like I've been training for this, let's go. Uh, and so our team got activated and called to active duty, and we were being sent to Turkey because it was right after... 9-11. So, uh, Afghanistan or Iraq, none of that had kicked off yet. So we were activated and sent to Turkey for operation Northern watch. And, um, and my teammates knew how hard I had worked to get into medical school. And, uh, at a team meeting, they said, Hey, why don't you stay behind, stay in school, train up the PJs to come over and get them ready to do that. That way you can stay in school. And, uh, And I knew what that meant. You know, that meant that longer hours, longer deployments, being away from their families longer. So that selflessness was certainly not lost on me. And I, I, you know, appreciated that more than they know. And so I stayed back and, uh, you know, the war kicked off and I'm in med school and I'm kind of slugging it out in med school. And then 2005, I'm getting ready to graduate and we get activated again, but this time we're going to Afghanistan. And uh, 2005, it's you know right in the middle of it, <clears throat> and so, like I said, it was never lost on me the the sacrifices that they made for me, and so I volunteered. I'm like, look, I graduate May 11th, I'll be ready on the 13th, and so I graduated and, and literally was on a, a transport plane to Afghanistan two days after graduating. Mm. So I know in the intro you said a month later, yeah. uh, but I had it was been, right
0: away. Yeah,
1: but it was like days, I think it was literally two days after I graduated and I was inbound to, um, to Kandahar and, uh, and when I got to Afghanistan, you know, I would, I was working as I, I was deployed as a pararescue specialist. I wasn't a doc, but technically I, I had just graduated medical school. So technically I was a doctor. So I volunteered, I walked over to the Kandahar, uh, hospital army run hospital and, uh, said, Hey, uh, I'm a doctor. <laughs> is there anything I can do? And they're yeah, like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Come on in. Right. Cause it's yeah, a, they got something a, for you, yeah. right. A military hospital in, uh, during wartime is, uh, is always understaffed. And so, uh, you know, pararescue has uh, a medical background. And so most of the skills I possessed were probably those of a PJ more than, than a doctor. Cause I hadn't done an internship. I hadn't mm-hmm. done a residency, I hadn't done anything. Uh, and so I really got some good mentorship. I really I got some amazing experience in the Kandahar Hospital. you know the, only the kind of experience you get uh, as a doctor in wartime, you know things that you don't normally do and it was uh, it was amazing just watching that hospital operate and, and you know try and save lives and mm-hmm. you know the sacrifices that some of those folks had to make that came in. you know, we had a number of mass casualties with, know people missing limbs and you know like just that struggle of you know i I remember the the head surgeon you know this guy had this arm that was just totally mangled and he's like save the life lose the arm you know just cold right but he's got to be
0: able to make that decision you got to do it and
1: right and uh so that was that was a, a pretty amazing experience and then Toward the end of that deployment, we got a, a call that a Marine had fallen into a river while on patrol with all of his kit on, and they couldn't find him. And so they deployed us to do a, a combat swift water rescue. Uh, and we searched, and we searched, we searched for days, uh, but couldn't find him. And, uh, and so we were kind of bummed out about that. And then it was really the end of my deployment. Uh, it was June 28th and I was supposed to be back in uh, in Arizona to start my internship on July 1st. And so I'm literally packing up my gear, getting ready to go to board board the plane and uh, I'm kind of imagining my new life, you know, as a doc, mm-hmm. cause I'm, yeah, I'm one, already kind of
0: one foot out of Afghanistan. That right.
1: Point. I'm already transitioning. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be a doc. You know, I'm picturing something between, you know, uh, scrubs and ER, you know, the TV shows and, right. um, and just packing up and just kind of mindless. And then my, my radio squelches and says, know, all rescue personnel report to the top. Uh, and I found it a little odd, but not completely out of the ordinary. But as soon as I walked in, I knew something was up. You could feel it. I mean, there's just the movement, just the feel in the air. Mm-hmm. You could tell uh, something bad had happened. And, and we were briefed that a, uh, an Army Chinook helicopter had just been shot down, 16 people on board, and we don't know the status of them. And they need us up in Bagram like now. And so that's how we initially heard about this. That's when we, we were launched on the Chinook shoot down yeah. not yeah. on red wings yeah yeah so, by, so
0: right by that point the four seals have been in they had been compromised yep. and a crew of 16 went in to, to go help them save them and we lose that crew as well so that's at the point where then you guys remember spanky saying that that's the point where you get inserted so you have no knowledge i mean this you anticipate look the missions we'll be doing why while here are rescue recovery you anticipate that but this is the first time you're hearing about what this op was and where you guys are going and, and who you're ultimately trying to go get.
1: Right. So <clears throat> I unload my stuff, I get my head back in the game, and, and we are off to Bagram Air Force Base, a couple hours, maybe mm-hmm. an hour flight north uh, on a C 130, and the helicopters follow us. And when we get there, uh, we're briefed that uh, the Chinook was shot down by. Taliban forces uh, as they were trying to insert a quick reaction force to rescue this still uh, unknown location of this four-man SEAL team, and that's the first we heard about Operation Red Wings. So our our team got split up, and half did a recovery of the uh, of the Chinook, and then half went and started searching for the guys from red wings and we searched all night. We, so the Chinook went in and, uh, the night stalkers, they went in during the day. They didn't have cover, right. It, it was just kind of a quick scramble and they, mm-hmm. they kind of knew the risks. Uh, and unfortunately it, it, uh, it didn't work out for them. And, uh, that was pretty devastating, of course. Uh, but we decided to fly at night you know, we use the HH-60 helicopters and we're smaller and more maneuverable. And, and so we'd fly at night and just looking for any, any signs of life. Uh, and we searched for a couple of days, you know, we got, we got there on the 28th, we searched the 29th, the 30th, uh, the first, and then on the second, you know, and ev- as every day passes, you kind of start to lose a little more and more hope, right. Cause you anticipate that, yeah. you know, that the chance of survival is, uh, decreasing. And like you said, we, we moved heaven and earth to, to find those guys. Like all assets were deployed to that site. You know, we had all of the drones, like everything in the joint command center was focused on that, you know, all other operations stopped. And so that was reassuring that, you know, we were doing everything we could to find those guys. And then on the, uh, the second of July, we get, we get a break and, uh, a, a village elder delivered a letter to one of the Marine fire bases, and it was from one of the the men of Operation Red Wings, Marcus Luttrell, and he said, "I'm injured. You know, I'm being sheltered, but the Taliban is uh, trying to get me. I need rescue, and uh, and so we had to figure out how we were going to do that, and uh, the." The commanding officer was a, a navy captain, and he wanted uh, the air force to put together a rescue package and the night stalkers, the army night stalkers, to put together a package, and uh, and then brief it, and then he would decide who would go. And a number of times during this whole thing, I just felt like we were kind of just going through the motions because it wouldn't, this wouldn't really happen. And I don't know if that was more of a defense mechanism about what <laughs> what I might be getting myself into or, right, right. or what. Uh, but often a, a number of times I'm like, yeah, there's no way this is going to happen. Like, there's just too many things going on. Like we've already lost 16 people. Like they're not going to send us into this dangerous situation. Uh, so the night stalkers present their, their plan. And then we presented our plan and our plan was to go in at night and, and use kind of speed and agility,
0: goggle uh, up and do all that. Yeah.
1: Right all at night, try to avoid any contact. Uh, Although we knew it was heavily populated with Taliban forces at that time, they didn't have night vision capabilities. Unfortunately they do now, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, Yeah. And so we ended up, we're presenting and then the Navy captain, I, I, I can, I can close my eyes and picture his face says, air force, you got the rescue. And that was probably the first time that, trip when i looked around and i was like holy crap really yeah. like this may actually happen yeah. uh and so then we had uh another meeting to formulate our our plan you know like who was going to execute this plan and uh there was a whole bunch of pjs on station by that time and there was a group of us and we all met up and um, and we knew this was a big deal Uh, everybody knew that like, this was kind of a mission of a lifetime and the the margin for error was pretty low. Mm -hmm. Um, And so once again, you know, we had a team meeting and when they're kind of deciding, you know, who should be on this mission and who should do what, you know, they, they looked to me and, and said, I should be, you know, on that bird that, that picks Marcus up. And part of it, I had to be the fact that I, you know, was, clearly the highest trained medical right. person. Well, you knew he was
0: going to be in rough shape when you got your hands right. on him.
1: Yeah. Right. We he knew that need help
0: right away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But certainly I wasn't the the most senior PJ. and I certainly wasn't the best PJ not the best operator, but, uh, again, I was just humbled that they would choose me to, to lead that mission. Mm-hmm. And I like to think they, they trusted me that I, that I'd get the job done or, or they knew how dangerous it was and they liked me the least. I'm not sure which way, <laughs> <I doubt laughs> but either way, uh, I was chosen to be the the team leader for the the pickup bird, and then my uh, my teammate was actually my roommate, who he and I had never been on a, a mission before, and so just kind of weird turns of fate how he yeah, and I ended up on that. Yeah, how
0: all that works out on right?
1: that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so we launched that night, and uh, like Spanky probably told you, it was the largest rescue mission you know ever launched uh, for that. For that theater, and we had uh, A 10s mm-hmm. uh, escorts and AC one hundred and thirty gunships, yeah,
0: gunships and all that, yeah.
1: And I remember flying in. Uh, it wasn't too long of a flight, but just thinking, you know, like please let me get through this. You know, let me not disappoint. You know, my teammates, not let my teammates down, and let, you know, I hope we can get Marcus because I know he's in bad shape. And and we knew the Taliban were closing in. We, I knew we had a really small window to get him. And over the radio, you know. I kept hearing the squelch, you know, the, the reports, you know, known enemy position and, you know, to the north and then to the south. And I was like, there's no way they're going to send us into this. It's just too hot. You know, they've already lost 16 people. And, uh, and I just remember being nervous and just this un- uneasy feeling and then wondering kind of curiously if, if I was more nervous that they would send us in or more nervous that they wouldn't send us in. And then we got the call and they're like, you're cleared to the LZ. And then it was just kind of like locked in and eyes on and, and time to go to work. Uh,
0: life upon arrival to the LZ is not ideal. <laughs> uh, and Spanky recounts the incredible effort. Uh, and we've talked about it before uh, in the movie. Marcus has picked up in the light of day in kind of what looks like an open field in this village. In reality, you're not, but feet from the edge of a cliff in the dark of night. And what ends up being a brownout and spanky talks about seeing this clay pot off in the distance and using that as his guide, as if he's back on the porch of his grandmother's house. Um, and it's incredible. And I'm like, shit, they should have put that in the movie. I mean, that was, <laughs> sounds amazing. From the seat you're sitting in that arrival to the LZ uh, which, oh, by the way, all happens probably in the span of about a minute, maybe this craziness, how much of that do you know is going on? Right. What, what, what's happening for you in that seat? What are you preparing to do?
1: Yeah. So I have no seat, uh, we're PJs in the back. We're essentially cargo. So we're strapped in, um, with a tie down, stra- not with a tie down strap, but with a, with an anchor, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're just sitting on the floor, and you know we're up comms with the with the Hilo, and we're seeing what's going on. And I'm looking out, and I'm like, "Where are we landing? Right? Because I got the same intel that Spanky did. It was supposed to be this big thing. We're supposed to land here. And then the survivor's going to be out at the two o'clock position, and everything's going to be hunky dory." Uh, hey,
0: who are you guys talking to in that moment? Is it the Rangers that are down there securing him? Like, who are you in comms with that says he's going to be here? Right. That Who's was got eyes on him at that point?
1: Nobody. That's predestined. Okay. That's predetermined. Wow. But we're talking with the A-10s who are lighting up that whole ridge yeah. with tracer fire. Yep. Uh, we're talking to the C-130s. We're talking to uh, command back at, at Bagram okay. as well. So there's a whole bunch of noise going on, right? Bagram's the one that ends up clearing us in based on the, uh, on the details from- That alone is incredible. <laughs> right. All Amazing. Yeah. Right. Just- how you don't get people running into each other. And anyway, I had, I had the easy job up until then. Right. I was just a passenger in the back and um, I was sitting off to the left side and my uh, teammate was on the right side and and we're listening to the radio chatter, you know, within the helicopter and uh, you can hear Spanky say, Oh, brown out. And then I'm looking right. And there's a, there's a mountain. And then I'm looking out my window on the left and I don't see anything, right? Because there's a sheer cliff. And I keep thinking, I'm like, where are we going to land, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, I know there's a bunch of dirt in the air. So we're close to ground somewhere. And uh, and then I hear the, uh, the flight engineer on the right side uh, say, stop right, right? And there was a tone to his voice that, uh, you know, everybody's supposed to remain calm. But you could tell there was a tone like, stop, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah, cause yeah. we were about to hit that side. Is of the that mountain. the
0: guy that's up front with him? Or is that a different guy?
1: No, that's uh, that's the different guy. So uh, there's, the, who was
0: the, who was the flight engineer?
1: I forget what Remember? his name is.
0: Was it the guy that was in Vietnam or is that a different guy? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, Cusick. There you go. Yeah. Ma- right? maybe, the,
0: maybe you like having that. I, I'm always amazed. 2005, you got a guy who was in freaking Vietnam yeah, on the right? aircraft with you guys, which was part of the story. I think is amazing.
1: Yes. Indeed. Uh, and so we hear stop, right? And then I feel this like kind of shift off to the left and I'm like looking over the cliff and I hear stop left. (laughs) And, uh, and then we kind of settle in and then just boom, Boom. like we drop down. And as soon as I felt the tension come out of those, those wheels, you know, I was like, go, go, go. And so my teammate threw open the door and, and he was out and I was right out. I was out right behind him, uh, but with all the dust and the dirt, you know the chaos, you yeah. know the cliffs and everything. You know the the survivor's supposed to be at the two o'clock position, but there's nothing at the two o'clock position. There's no way, uh, and so we're scrambling. We're on night vision goggles, you know, with the dirt and the dust, and we know there's bad guys in the area, and and we see off to the six o'clock by the rotor, two figures approaching. I'm like, uh, good guy, bad guy. I don't know how many times. Mm-hmm. I said that, you know, good guy, bad guy. And, uh, you know, I brought my weapon up and safety's off and, you know, good guy, bad guy. Then I see that they're in Afghani garb. There's two of them, a big guy and a smaller guy, uh, both in Afghani garb, you know, the white kind of the man dress that they wear,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, good guy, bad guy. I don't know yet. And I'm like, I can't let them get to the helicopter. Right. Cause they could have a grenade. They could have an IED, whatever. Uh, so my fingers on the trigger, I'm taking the tension out of my trigger, and I see that one of them's got a rifle. So I'm aiming at the big one with the rifle. And good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy. And then I hear, you know, oh, it's your precious cargo. Like, whoo, right? safety on, weapon down, and like mm-hmm. my teammate authentic- authenticates them. You know, there's two of them, like in the movie. You know, they had the big scene with the with the kid, and they're yeah, like, oh, yeah, like, right, yeah. like we don't sure. have time to sort this sure. out. Like, sure. so we grab yeah. them both we authenticate them and we pull them on board and then we're like, go, go, go. And, uh, spanky takes off and gets out of there. And and oftentimes the, this is the most dangerous part of the rescue because like in Vietnam, they would lay what they call a SAR trap where they'd let you land. They let you recover, the, you know, your survivor. And then as you're taken off, they got boom, there. they blow you out of the sky. And so everybody's head was on a swivel and, you know, high tension, uh, high high tense environment right there and you know we're we're scanning we're making sure you know the a tens are are doing their thing and we get up and once we clear that ridge you know we start working on marcus and i i just remember looking at him and just thinking man i've never seen anybody look so beat up and tired i mean he just yeah you know just yeah broken yeah he was just so tired looking and um i mean it's one thing
0: john right like It's one thing to have survived the firefight alone to go through everything. His body physically goes to, I think he bit his tongue in half, right? He goes through all this incredible, I mean, just physical wear and tear then to arrive to the village and have whatever happened to him there. I mean, yeah. and, And then within seconds of potentially finger all the way through the trigger, if you don't know who they are. In that moment, right, it's absolutely incredible. And it's part of the story that, you know, that every time I hear it, I just get chicken skin. Cause it's like, even till the last moment before you actually get your hands on him, you're still never sure you're going to be able to get them. Right. So take me back in. Right. Like, I mean, just because he's a big dude, right.
1: But he when you've got him dude, on the right. bed
0: of that pave hawk and you guys are out there, I mean, just, yeah. How rough a shape was he? We can see in the movie what it's like, but I'm sure that doesn't even do it justice.
1: No and so once again there are no beds you know in the back of a HH60 uh, air force helicopter there he's on the floor yeah. just l- with us as well right And so we're just checking him out making sure you know vital signs everything are okay and we're flying him to uh, a marine fire base to transload him to a C130 to get him yep. uh to uh to the to the hospital right and so we finally land in uh jalalabad i think it mm-hmm. was and uh and then finally- had to
0: drop his dude off because we all remember it's two you, you, grab, two dudes, two guys. Right? you grab two dudes right one's yeah. a seal the other one's not the little guy wasn't supposed to be with you
1: no right so we dropped him at uh at a firebase as well yeah and uh that's funny i, I don't remember if it was the same firebase yeah or not anyway when we got Marcus to the firebase, uh, the C-130 was waiting there. We were going to hand him off, uh, transload him to the to the flight surgeon, and, and just kind of say goodbye there. Uh, <laughs> as we're getting him out of the helicopter, you know, he looks down at me and he's like, "Hey, man, I, I want to try and walk to the to the
0: C-130." Oh, bro, we got you, man. Like not <laughs> I
1: look up and I'm like all right man whatever yeah. you want because yeah. i did not want to have to try and carry him i mean he's a beast he he's a was beast, probably yeah. down 20 30 pounds from where he I was know. but he's still you know probably 250 pounds I you know, i've only ever five.
0: seen him once in person and it was at a big conference but he walked by and i was able to very nicely you know give a shoulder tap hey man just yeah. great to meet you thank you for everything and i was like whoa
1: <laughs> he's a big, a big dude, dude. Yeah. yeah i just saw him uh June twenty eighth, in fact, yeah, at the at the Michael Murphy yeah, uh, Navy Seal Museum, yeah. Yeah, he looks great, you know. So
0: he's done incredible, it's, yeah. All right, so after all, right, so finally, you you've delivered him, right? Yeah. Now the next evolution takes him. You're sort of done with that part. We talked to Spanky about it. At what point do you sit and finally take a breath and say, "Holy hell!" Like, look at what we just did.
1: Yeah, that's about the time as soon as we got him into the hands of that flight surgeon, like we all just kind of exhaled, like you said, and uh, thank the powers that be, you know, that we were able to, to deliver that. Uh, But little did we know uh, that was only the first half of our, uh, of our adventure. When Marcus uh, got rescued and, and uh, was debriefing everybody, then we knew, the fate of the rest of the men of operation red wings. And we knew that the next would be a, a recovery mission. And so he told us the location of, uh, Michael Murphy and Danny Dietz who were in the same place and Matt Axelson, who was a little bit farther away. And so, uh, once again, we planned to go in at night and, and recover those guys. And, uh, and we went in on the 4th of July and, uh, and I, I was skeptical. You know, I was nervous going in on the second of July to get Marcus, but really I didn't have such a a negative attitude toward that first mission. As I did the second one, I had a bad feeling about it. Mm. Um, It was the 4th of July. I just like setting up the storyline. You know, I I kept thinking about Pat Tillman. You
0: You just pulled off an incredible miracle to go get the one guy too.
1: Right. And now we're, now we're pushing oh, our luck and back
0: again. Like, yeah. Ta-
1: right. The well, Taliban well, we got to go,
0: but you got to go. Well, we can't right. leave them there.
1: They know we're coming. Mm. They know where we're going to be. Right. Cause they know where the bodies are. Uh, and they're pissed because we just snatched the, you know, yeah. the live seal that had killed a bunch of their teammates and brothers um, right out from under them. So I had a bad feeling about this mission. And uh, this mission was going to be different because we couldn't land because they were on such a steep slope that we had to just hold our hover and, and hold and put the hoist down and recover them that way. So one ship, we were two ship again. uh, One ship would hover and the other would fly around drawing fire. Right. So we could get them out.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, and to, I don't know if Spanky mentioned this part, but uh, to make us as light as possible, We took no no guns, everything, everything that we didn't need. We took out. Yeah. So the mini guns, all the ammo, but also the Kevlar flooring, like that stuff is heavy. Uh, But we decided that we're going to go without it because it really weighed us down. And so we had no protection. We were 100% reliant on, you know, (laughs) the the weapons that we carry or personal, uh, you know, M4s that you know, aren't going to do much in a helicopter and then all of the, uh, the support ships. And so I remember watching the, you know, the tracer fire as, as we're going in and, and thinking, you know, these are the coolest 4th of July fireworks ever, <laughs> you know? but they're going the show, wrong way. Right. They're, show going, what's up. Yeah. they're going down instead of up, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is fortunate. Uh, and so we, we ended up getting, getting, uh, Michael Murphy and Danny Dietz on that mission and, and bringing them up and then covering them in the mm-hmm. in the flag as soon as mm-hmm. we got them up and then bringing them back to to Bagram Air Force Base where we were met by practically the entire base you know the yeah. chaplain services and everybody just repatriate repatriated of it it was it was something to see um,
0: and you got we got up, we got axe yeah. a little bit later right so actually, yeah.
1: yeah. So, a couple of days later. And I wasn't I wasn't in on that yeah. on that. Mission. Um,
0: help me with the details, right? There's there's an American on the ground with the bodies, right? Has yeah. secured them. A Ranger them team, Ranger team. And if I'm not mistaken, the guy who found and was with Murph, I think spent a couple of days with him. Yeah. Day or two with him. But then you drop in, pick him up, put your hands physically on him, and carry him up into the helicopter is that so is they, that how that kind of how does that work
1: yeah so we lowered the hoist with a basket right with the yep. stokes basket
0: yep
1: right and then put them in put him and danny both at the same time and then brought them up and then and then got up on board and then what? and then we left the ranger team with the, there was pjs got to get out of there of rangers i know yeah. they were yeah. kind of pissed they're like wait i thought you sent in a big helicopter and we're like no oh, i'm man. sorry so they they were in the field like for days after yeah. that as well. Yeah, those guys, those like, guys are incredible.
0: I mean, yeah, that, that's a and that's another part of the story I want to tell at some point. So if you know those guys, we'd love to tell their story as well because I think that's that's a pretty incredible part of the story. Yeah, for that sure. Humble servant, right? That that guardian,
1: guardian. There. Yeah. The,
0: what's the I what's the weight and the emotion of seeing that hoist come back in, seeing that basket come back up and taking off, knowing we we got these guys off the battlefield and we're taking them home where they belong
1: yeah that yeah it it sounds cliche but you don't really think that at the time mm-hmm. right it it's it's after all the the business is done that you can kind of sit back and reflect and, and just kind of absorb what had happened and what had transpired um another reason why the that 4th of July mission was I had such a bad feeling about it. Is that the day before we had what's called a ramp ceremony for the for the Chinook uh, crew? Mm-hmm. So everybody lines up on the on the flight line, and they bring the caskets out, each in a Humvee, a flag draped casket, uh, and they load it on the the C one forty one, I think it was, and take them to you know stateside. And so everybody turned out for that ceremony and, you know, I'm watching as you know 16 Humvees go by with each with a flag draped casket on it and just wondering, you know, is there, is there going to be another one of these ramp ceremonies mm-hmm. in a couple of days? Uh, so that really brought the severity of the situation home, right? Because I'm sure when those guys launched, they, they weren't anticipating that happening. Um, and it just really hammered home, you know, how, vulnerable uh we are and really how i don't know like luck i don't know what you call it yeah but uh yeah divine intervention
0: whatever you want to call it right yeah
1: um things intercede yeah it was not lost on me and the fact that i'm standing here talking to you today is not lost on me i feel a a responsibility you could see you know even so many years later it's still Still affects me. I've, I feel a responsibility to those guys. And, um, and really, that was how Memorial Day Murph was born. Yeah. Was really that desire for me to make some sort of sense of all the death and, you know, all the just disrupted families, you know, all the heartbreak for what, you know, and especially with the uh, with the the abandonment for lack of a better term of Afghanistan no. you know i've it's really been hard on me and that's really why i'm coming out and i'm talking about this cuz people need to know that that's not who we are you know no. that we risk everything to get those guys and that we don't abandon people like Ugh. I know we did in Afghanistan and yeah, it's hard, and I've, it's hard I've, I've to had, fight that. I
0: know I, I've had a few conversations with folks and feel very honored to to have that. And you think about what the last year has been like and, and our heart goes out because it's like after 20 years, after, after seeing those movements, I, I know, and I don't, Josh, we don't take for granted here, right? What it means for you to go into the space and talk about it. And so our listeners sit in with attentive ear and a grateful heart just to take the time Right. And do it. So we don't take it for granted either. So it's a few years removed from this. It's not by accident that we put the Murph shirt yeah. on today. Right. I've been I a Murph participant for years. So the, the, the workouts there, right. Guys are doing this one mile run, hundred pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, one mile run in a way to vest to be the standard. Um, but at what point is it like, let's make this a thing. Let's do yeah. a thing here. Tell me about the genesis of that. Cause I think it's incredible. Your role in that
1: it it's it's been amazing you know uh i'm an er doc i uh i've done a, a number of things uh being involved with the genesis and creation of this american tradition has been the greatest thing that mm-hmm. i've ever done right it's just it's so uniting uh and it's so amazing to watch that uh, I'm, I'm completely humbled that it has gotten as big as it has but when I got back, you know, uh, I started my internship and, and I was, you know, as quickly as I was in Afghanistan, I was back and into a medical internship, which is a great way to uh, <laughs> to delve into something so you can completely not think about what the hell just happened to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was knee deep in that. And then I started doing CrossFit in 2007. And, uh, and the CrossFit gym had this, lead, had this hero wad board on it. And I was like, oh, Murph. And I was like, I wonder if that has anything to do with Michael Murphy. And so I looked it up and I was like, sure enough, you know, Michael Murphy. And so I told uh, the owner of the gym, I was like, hey, you know that Murph thing? <laughs> like, I, I was kind of involved with, and he thought that was uh, really cool. And so we did Murph on Memorial Day. Or actually, I did it on Memorial Day. There was like a hero wad, and I picked Murph to do on Memorial Day, and and uh, and usually Memorial Days for me had kind of been uh, sad and depressing. You know, like I'd end up just drinking and sitting around, and you know, kind of feeling sorry for myself. And Mm -hmm. um, but not this Memorial Day. This Memorial Day, I went out and I busted it out, and I I was exhausted. Right? Yeah. You know. I. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a verb, you know, you were murfed, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like you oh, felt yeah. murfed, right? Oh yeah. Every time. Uh, and it was, uh, it was amazing. And I was like, I'm going to get people to do this. And so next year we had the whole, like everybody at the gym do it uh, just to see if we could recreate kind of that vibe that I got. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was synergistic, right? Cause everybody's cheering for each other and rooting for each other. And, um, and that's when I knew, I was like, this is, this is something yeah and that was in new york and then we moved uh my wife and i i I got married and we moved to tucson arizona and so i brought the idea of memorial day murph to that gym to see if we could recreate it and and uh and see and then so we did it as a gym i think it was probably 2009 and then again in 2010 and i was like this needs to be a national thing like this Yep. It is just such a cool experience uh that I think people would be behind it. And uh and so I had plans to just use Facebook and um at the CrossFit network to to get the word out but I wanted to touch base with Mike Murphy's dad Dan. Yeah. Yep. Um, Incredible. I was, Incredible. I was like if I yep. if I'm going to do anything in your son in his son's name you know I'd like like to get his blessing. And so I contacted him and I had never talked to him before. I don't remember being ever being so nervous talking to somebody.
0: I felt the same way. Uh, way.
1: Yep. Right. And just, uh, but but he's just so gracious and, you know, any sort of information he could get about his son. And so I told him, you know, that when we got him on board, he was covered with the flag and this and that. And then of course, you know, it's like, oh, by the way, I got this thing, you know, everyone's Mm -hmm. trying to trying to sell him something. And so I, I, I pitched it to him and I said, I'm I'm not gonna do this without your agreement, right? Without your concurrence. And so he said, Let me see if I got this right. You're gonna ask people to pay to do Michael's workout at their own gym. i like, yeah. He's like, Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, he's like, Yeah, sure, go ahead yeah sure so i don't know if he thought i was harmless or thought it, i don't know uh anyway i just spoke at the uh the michael murphy yeah. golf tournament and uh and i told that story about like <laughs> he thought like yeah it sounds like a yeah. great idea go ahead with that uh, they've also
0: recently cut the ribbon on the uh the navy seal museum as well
1: yep that that they was part of that of trip
0: sweet That's
1: awesome. yeah um uh, and so that first year, you know, with nothing but a, a Facebook page and word of mouth through the CrossFit community, we had like 7,000 people do it. Uh, and this is being run by just my wife and I, like mm-hmm. we're packing t-shirts and we're like, and so the next year we do it, uh, there was over 10,000 people and uh, we had just had twins And my wife looks at me lovingly over stuffing these shirts in this bag. And and she's like, "Uh, we're not doing this again next year. We're going
0: to need a bigger boat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that's when we partnered up with uh, the guys from Forged. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike Sauer, awesome dude. Uh, He's a teammate of Mike Murphy's. And so it it was just a natural transition. And then uh, we kind of worked together that year. And then the year after that, they just completely took it over. Cause they had all of the, you know, they had the logistics, they had everything that they needed. And so they, that's when they made the transition to the Murph challenge, just kind of put their own spin on it. And, uh, and it's been amazing Like yeah. to say a million people do it. I, I don't know, but probably probably like
0: tens of tens of thousands, if not more. And what I love so much about it, Josh, and let I'll be honest with you guys. It's a free plug. I've been a huge forged fan before I even started doing the Murph challenge. Like I just always, I love their shirts. I love their clothing. Their shirts all fit comfortable. I got the old school legend shirt for Chris Kyle. Like I just have always yeah. liked their stuff. Yeah. yeah, And I also know, better known, these guys have been through the fires. The least I can do is support a business like this. So I've just always been a fan, right? Of what they do. Yeah. But then you take this on top of it and what is what it, I think it's done a few things. It's created an incredible community. Yep. And it's created a chance for us to unite across physical limitations. We do our Murph every year, most years that, I, that I'm uh, uh, with my F3 buddies, Fitness Fellowship and Faith. Yep. right? We always do a Murph together. If we're at the beach, we're meeting at the park and we're doing it there, right? If we're back in our local area, same thing. We're finding some pull-up bars and we're doing that. We're sharing in that suffering together. Now we're doing it with thousands and thousands of people across the world together and at the same time, we're doing it to honor not just Mike, right? But yeah, he's a big but. But it's really for all of us, and it becomes, I think, the perfect way for. I mean, I, I mean, what can I do on Memorial Day? I don't know any Gold Star families or anybody that's lost anyone in combat. Cool. Here's what you can do: get up, strap up, get after it. Right. Can you do that? Yeah, man, I can do it. Can you do some vert? I don't know if I can do 100. Pl- can you do some version of this? Yeah. Get up, strap it up. Let's go. Yep. And it unites people to go do something, gives you something to do. And it, ta- and it takes you out of it and it puts the focus on those who have made that ultimate sacrifice. for
1: you. Right. Something bigger than yourself. Absolutely. It allows people to just absolutely. give a little, right. And just yeah. be a part of it. And just, you know, I always say, you know, if it sucks, if you think it sucks, then you're doing it right. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> you know? Cause that's really the, the point of it is just to go out and put in some effort. And you don't, I always say, you don't have to be a Navy SEAL to do it. I said, it helps, but you don't have to be a Navy <laughs> SEAL to do it. And you don't have to do all of it. Like we, I can make a MRF for anybody. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had my dad out here. He's 90. He did a MRF. I had my nine-year-old twins. So we had from, from mm-hmm. nine to 90 doing a MRF. And it sucked across the spectrum, you know, but they all they all did it and they were all part of it. So mm-hmm. it's just amazing. Uh, to be a part of it. and like you, you mentioned it's worldwide there's you know i get emails and pictures from all over we were in germany last year and my cousin was like oh yeah it's a month challenge i was like what how do you know about memorial day murph you know right. like yeah. you and and this year i got uh one of the docs i work with her brother is a seal reservist who is a a contractor over in Ukraine right now. Yep,
0: gotcha. Uh,
1: and he sent me a picture of him and his Ukrainian buddies doing marfa Memorial Day. I'm like, like you guys don't yeah. have enough to do. Like, yeah, man. I mean, it just speaks to the impact that it has on people. It just, it's a sense of community, and really, like with F3, it's just part of that. Like being yep. something, being a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah,
0: and I think in today's day and age. Guys, you're, you're likely going to have to go out and seek it out, right? Yep. And But but don't let the world tell you you're this or that and we're divided because of this and everybody else sucks. I promise you that's not really the case. We are all a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's wh- It's why we do this. It's why we do this here. It's why we share these stories to show yep. you that there are people that go above and beyond through service, purpose, and impact because they're part of something bigger than themselves. And I think this thing has taken off because it, it strikes that chord. Yep. Uh, which I think is just pretty
1: cool about it. It is. Yeah. Like I said, it's of all the things I've done. I'm most proud of, of being a part of that. And it's just, like I said, humbling. I do it. I do it every year. Uh, I don't know. It's like 17 years. (laughs) It's amazing. Every year that, and I wear that same body armor that I used to recover Mm. uh, Murph. And I did all the rescue stuff. And I wear that. um, Partially to remember, you know, Partially because it's not quite 20 pounds. It's more like 16 pounds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you looked around to make
1: sure. Nobody... I'm like, don't tell anybody as I'm on a but By the podcast, time you have your
0: shoes on and everything else, and you're going to the standard of your equipment, I'll tell you what, at minimum, at minimum, there are two days a year where I'll do the Murph, if not more, but at minimum. Yeah. June 28th. Okay. And right, Memorial Day. My yeah. birthday is June 28th. Oh wow. And so when I talked at the front end of the show about that connection to Red Wings, I just I just feel a personal sense of duty and I wasn't even connected to it. Yeah. Like you were. Yeah. Uh, and so all my F three buddies know, uh, you know, if Jodas is queuing an F three workout on, on June twenty eighth on his birthday, <laughs> uh look out, good chance we're heading a mile down the road and we're gonna find a place to do some pull ups and then yeah. And so just just be be, be ready on 28 June because we're coming in hot with it there. And then we'll come back. You know, we'll have done it Memorial Day. You can do it again after that. So I look for those two days to take a little time and and remember those guys specifically. But I think it speaks to the broader, too.
1: Yeah, of course. Right?
0: Thousands of Americans who have laid it down for us. So you and I can sit here today and do this.
1: Right. And. Dan Murphy's the first to say that, you know, he's like, Michael wouldn't want this to be about him, right. you know, but certainly the front man for this whole thing. I don't think we could have had a better representation of selflessness and sacrifice mm-hmm. than, than Mike Murphy. And the guy's just.
0: Well, know, and Dan, so we had Mr. Murphy sure. on episode 25 of the show. So if you guys, are Oh, I didn't know if you, that. Yeah, yeah if, you're, yeah. if you're new to this and listeners, if you're new, go back to 25, you can listen to Dan Murphy his perspective on, you know, when Mike told him, Hey, I want to be a seal and I want to do all these things. And, you know, Dan says, you know, you could die. And Mike's like, yeah, I know, but I, I'm not just going to sit here. And then Mr. Murphy's incredible perspective on, you know, what could have happened in the battlefield. And he says, look, Mike did what he did. Marcus did what he did. And if Marcus had not survived, the story doesn't get out. Mike yep. is not a medal of honor recipient. Like all those things happen for a purpose. And so they're just, yeah. their family's incredible uh, yeah. purpose behind this is just, it's inspiring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, and once again, when Dan asked me to be the keynote speaker mm. for the, the Murphy golf tournament, like, how do you say no, but sure, not really something I'm comfortable with. And that's kind of part of my thing is like, you got to do things that you're not comfortable sure. that, that that make you uncomfortable. And so public speaking is it's turned into more of something that I enjoy. Clearly you and I are talking now, but, uh,
0: Well, hopefully we made you a little uncomfortable today.
1: I, I try and get uncomfortable at yeah. least once yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, you have to go, you have to go seek it.
0: Right. John? We got to go yeah, see It's why I get absolutely. up at four 30 every morning. Right. It's why right. I'm out uh, working out at five. Like I just, I, I need a little something to bristle me up a little bit for the, cause the day is going to throw a bunch of shit at you. Like the day yeah. is going to throw a lot of stuff at you. So let me go throw something at myself.
1: And if we're not used to adversity, you know, the first thing that takes us out of our routine completely knocks the wheels off and we're down in the ditch. So yeah, I, Mm -hmm. I, like I said, I look forward as well and, and try and get uncomfortable at least once a day. I say, My phrase is, you know, we live at 72 and fluorescent and that used to be, you know, because we used to work, you know, like I work in a hospital and every day it's 72 and fluorescent, but it's, it's really morphed into more of like a state of mind where people live at that constant state of 72 and fluorescent, you know, they're, they're not out challenging themselves They're not doing things that make them uncomfortable. Do something that you suck at, you know, when's the last time you sucked at something? I, I suck at things all the time, you mm-hmm. know, but just not getting comfortable and not getting into that routine. Cause then I think the malaise sits in and then sets in. And then, uh, I, I feel like there's just a, especially among men these days that there's just a national malaise or fatigue that, you know, things like F3, I think are hitting that right where it needs to be. And, uh, and Murph, you know, yep the murph challenge is is a piece of that as well and i think that's why things like f3 and and the murph challenge are so popular that men are looking for something and i'm glad they are right and yeah. i'm glad we can provide some of that
0: amen well said josh this has been just an absolute thrill man a total honor uh and man again like i say, we don't take it for granted right to sit in the chair to to remember those memories uh but we're grateful and it's important something we need to do I'm just grateful for you, man.
1: Hey, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to tell the story. You know, it's, it's not easy. It's not comfortable, but I think especially these days, it needs to get out there. And if I can help inspire somebody to get up and go do the Murph challenge or go come to your, one of your workouts, you know, then my job is done. So thank you for what you guys do and giving me the platform.
0: You're welcome here anytime, brother. It's Josh Apple. That's me. That's right. That's been this episode of Pick Up Six Podcast.